Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChumbaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to a very special 480th episode of the Hollywood Reporters Awards Chatter podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and my guest today is one of the most remarkable young women in the world. At the age of 12, she began speaking out against the Taliban's crackdown on girls' ability to get an education in her native Pakistan, and soon began commanding considerable attention. On October 9th, 2012, when she was just 15, She was coming home from school when a member of the Taliban boarded the bus she was on, asked for her by name, and then shot her in the face at point-blank range. She and her family were then rushed to England, where she made a miraculous recovery. And over the decade-plus since, she has courageously continued her fight and made a real difference. Indeed, Time Magazine named her one of the 100 most influential people in the world in 2013, 2014, and 2015. And on October 10th, 2014, nearly two years to the day after she was shot, she was chosen to receive the Nobel Peace Prize, making her, at 17, the youngest ever recipient of a Nobel in any field, and also that prize's first ever Pakistani and Pashtun winner. I'm talking, of course, about Malala Yousafzai. Malala and I sat down last week in Santa Monica, where she was staying while lending her support as an executive producer to a 29-minute documentary called Stranger at the Gate, which has been nominated for the Best Documentary Short Oscar. The film tells the remarkable story of a PTSD-afflicted Islamophobic veteran of the U.S. Marines who had planned to bomb a mosque in Indiana, only to be won over while visiting the mosque by its congregants. Over the course of our conversation, the now 25-year-old Malala and I discussed her early years and what inspired her to take up the fight for girls to receive a proper education in the first place, what her life has been like since she was shot, and the degree to which progress has been made in the years since, why she is increasingly devoting her attention to Hollywood, where, in 2021, she established a production company, Extracurricular, which is overseen by former Berlanti Productions executive Erica Kinnair and has a deal with Apple TV+, and why she believes that every person should see Stranger at the Gate, plus much more. We'll get to that conversation in a moment, but first, I spoke with Joshua Seftel, the veteran documentary filmmaker who directed Stranger at the Gate, about his path to that project and working with Malala. 
Joshua, thank you so much for doing this and uh, congratulations on the nomination and the film. And I want to begin by asking you about the fact that since 2015, you have been focused on a thematic project, I think it's fair to say, this, uh, where the common theme is Islamophobia. And this is, I guess, broadly called Secret Life of Muslims, of which this project, Stranger at the Gate, is an installment. But you, there's, this goes back years and 25 installments. How did you get started on this in the first place? Yeah, it's been it's been a while. Um, we the way it started really is it came out of my childhood, actually. Mm -hmm. So I, I was born in Schenectady, New York. And when I was a boy growing up there, I faced anti-Semitism mm -hmm. and, you know, kids called me names, Jew Kike, Jewish Josh. Mm -hmm. They threw pennies at me in the hall, you know. Um, I can still remember the sound of the pennies hitting the floor, you know. And, you know, because they wanted, they thought, oh, maybe he'll pick it up. It'll show that Jews are cheap. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, someone threw a, a rock the size of a brick through the front window of our home. Oh, my God. So, th so those things stayed with me, you know. And when I, be after I became a filmmaker and uh, then 9-11 happened, mm -hmm. I saw my Muslim friends facing hatred mm -hmm. and Islamophobia and all the things that felt really familiar to me. And at that point I felt like, well, maybe I can in some small way help as a filmmaker to tell stories that would counter that narrative. And that's how this project started. And when you, when you embarked upon it, was it one thing that has since just grown into this massive uh, uh, undertaking, or was it always planned to be an ongoing thing? We knew that we wanted to do one set of, of films. Mm -hmm. And, and so we did that and those were released actually right, right before Trump was elected. Cool. So the timing was interesting. Yeah. And then we got a grant to do more of them mm -hmm. uh, during the Trump administration. And this time around, we decided to make uh, a longer film, this, this Stranger at the Gate. Yes. Uh, and this one is it's longer than the other films, and it's a little um, more epic yeah. in some ways. Uh, and it's been a really, really exciting uh, experience. Where did you learn this unbelievable story yourself for the first time? So believe it or not, we, f we found it in USA Today University Edition, okay. and which is a very obscure version of USA Today. <laughs> and uh, we when we came across the story, we were like, this, can this be real? Like, my God, you know, this U S Marine decides he's going to blow up a mosque. Then he gets there and he meets the people and they embrace him and they're kind to him. And he starts to question his plan. The bomb is already built, but he um, changes his mind and ultimately joins the congregation and, you know, becomes president of the mosque. It's just every twist of, of this story gets more and more mind blowing. And I, I, I guess, was there ever any, was it a challenge to get these folks once you decided to pursue this to, um, participate or was everybody gung ho to share the story? Well, the U S Marine, his name is Mac McKinney. He was already doing, you know, doing talks about this and sharing his story because he wants to educate other people, mm. uh, who, 
who are like the, who think the way he used to. Mm-hmm. So he's on a mission. So he was very gung ho about being part of the film. It was the members of the, the congregation who I think, you know, to them, the, this was just their everyday life. You know, they, they're very kind people and they welcome the stranger. They welcome people into their community and they show kindness. And that's the way they approach the world. And so when I first came to them, I think they were like, what's the big deal? You know, we, so we welcomed this guy in and he was a domestic terrorist and we changed (laughs) his mind and, you know, big deal. But I think once they saw the film, they understood how, what they did and the magnitude of it and how, how inspiring it is, especially in this moment, in this time when there's so much division and hate and people aren't really talking to each other anymore, you know. If, if someone votes for a different presidential candidate than you do, you might stop being friends with them these days, right? And it's, it's just, uh, it's not a good moment where we're not talking to people who are different from us. Mm-hmm. And I think the message of this film and what, what inspired me about Bibi Barami and Sabra Barami, who are the founders of this mosque that Mac wanted to blow up, is that they truly embrace that that approach of, of, um, just talking to, we need to talk to each other. We need to get to know each other in order to, you know, I don't know, save the world perhaps. Mm -hmm. Now, I guess coming out of perhaps the anti-Semitism that you described, it seems like from the minute you hit the ground as a filmmaker, there's been a social conscience thread through the work, right? We've got orphaned Romanians, Emmy nomination at the age of 22 through apartheid South Africa. It's very uh, subject I'm fascinated in because my mom is from South Africa and her father was. Anyway, we don't need to oh, get into that, but wow, I, I'm I dying to track down that one of yours. Oh, yeah. I want to read. I want to see that. But I mean, it just seems like you had to believe and continue to believe. I think it's fair to say that that documentaries can make a real world difference. Yes. So the story is I, I was pre-med. My dad was a doctor. I wanted to be a doctor. I planned to be a doctor. I was, I did all the requirements at, at college. I, when I finished college, I took a year off before I applied to med school. And in that year, I ended up going to Romania and making a documentary. You went to Romania intending to make the documentary? Yes. Okay. I had this opportunity where, um, someone, asked me to go and make a film and, you know, they didn't have any money. So they thought, oh, this college kid will do it for free, which was true. <laughs> and, uh, I, so I went and I borrowed a video camera. I didn't really know what I was doing. And I walked into these orphanages. This was 1990 when, you know, Ceausescu had just fallen and, uh, you know, the country was opening up and suddenly it was revealed that there were over a hundred thousand abandoned children in these packed into these orphanages. So, I was living in the orphanages and filming these unspeakable conditions. And I brought this footage back to the States and put it together as a film. And when it was on public television, you know, it, um, it just, uh, I think it really shocked people. Mm -hmm. And, and the result was that the broadcast of the film led to the American adoption of thousands of Romanian children. Amazing. And, you know, I was thinking about med school and I was like, well, I was going to go to 
med school and then join Doctors Without Borders and travel the world and heal the world. But maybe, maybe this documentary thing is kind of a, could do the same thing, you know? Um, and I, I just said, well, I'll do, I'll, I'll put off med school for another year. I want to make one more film. And then a year here later, I'd are, say yeah. one more year, <laughs> one more year. And now here we are. Yeah. So I don't know. I think I might be too old for med school now, but, but, uh, that's, how, that's really, it what, would be a good documentary. You go right? back to med school. Oh my God. I don't think I'd do very well at this point, but it, it was, you know, it was really, that's what I think drives me is I feel this obligation to do the work that I would have done if I'd become a doctor. And, and so, you know, most of my films have some kind of thread of, you know, social conscience trying to make the world a better place in, in some small way. Now, the one item on your very long and impressive resume that does not look like it fits with all the others. I know you know where I'm going, uh, although I, it did make a real world difference for people. But this is the fact that you directed the first two seasons of Queer Eye for the Straight Guy, the reality program that became a giant hit. How did that happen? Well, so yes, that's true. And that was 2004, I believe. And I would, I would contest that that really does fit with the the work, you know, that, that show at it's hard to remember really, but in 2004, like having gay protagonists in a TV show was a, was new. It was a pre Brokeback Mountain, pre a lot of stuff. It was a big deal. And it was, it shattered, it shattered some stereotypes. It also put forth, you know, gay people as heroes. Mm -hmm. They came in and they saved the day every week and, uh, inspired. And they had, they had superpowers really in, in the show, which, you know, maybe now it's a little out, outmoded, but at the time, you know, that show was really cutting edge and I was excited to be a part of it because I knew it would open people's hearts and minds. How did you even, somebody, was it, I guess, how did you get involved in the first place? Well, I was making docs and, and I was living in Boston and the the team that developed that show was a Boston company and they were my friends. And I think they came to me and said, Hey, we need your help. Could you help us direct this? And I stepped in and I loved it. And I just feel like that show, I mean, some people say that show along with Will and Grace is one of the, are some of the reasons that gay marriage became I totally legislation. see it. Absolutely. The doc world has changed a lot over the three or so decades, right? That you've been a part of it. I think it's accurate to say that when you started out in it, you know, you basically had to get grants if you wanted to finance a movie and it was going to either end up on PBS or HBO. You've had both uh, for your projects. Now, when you look around and see how widespread this is, where there's all the streamers that want docs, there's, you know, places like the New Yorker, which would never have been in this a few years ago. What do you, what are the pros and cons of the way things have evolved? It's a good question. And it's a complicated question. I know people have been writing about it a lot and talking about it a lot. So I know it's a complex thing right now. I would say that, you know, the pros are that a lot more people are working. A lot more people are actually making a living, uh, making documentaries, mostly in the series, Mm -hmm. uh, format. And that's very exciting. It's, that's sort of a new thing because 
as a documentary filmmaker, it was really hard to make a living. I mean, it's still, it still can be, mm-hmm. uh, but now with these, all these streamers and, and people buying docs and commissioning doc series, you can get by. I think that, um, the cons as far as I see it mm-hmm. is there's a, a certain level of, of, um, commercialism to it that in some ways is to some people is problematic. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the, some of the docs are some of the doc series. There's a lot of true crime. There's a lot of, you know, just a geography, a right? geography. And I don't want to, you know, to each his own, you know, but it's not really, some of that's not for me. Right. Um, I don't, I don't love, I feel like, and I feel like some of the content is really stretched, you know, you like, you'll see something that's six parts and you're like, you get to the second part and you're like, this could have been a, (laughs) you know, a 70 minute documentary instead of a six hour series. Totally. And that's to me, that's, um, it, the content's being driven by the, by the dollar, I think in that you've gone in the opposite direction. You, you choose to work in short form a lot. That is, that's gotta be a, um, challenging thing to do because, uh, you know, there's not a obvious outlet for that. Most of the time you guys have, you found it for your projects over the years and at various, many different places, but, um, we're not seeing shorts before features at the movies anymore. Right. So why do you continue to, um, choose to work in that medium? Yeah. I've made a lot of shorts in the last several years and, you know, I, I guess the way I feel about it is that, um, it's hard to monetize shorts, but it's not necessarily hard to get money to make a short. Mm -hmm. So if you get the money ahead of time, if you get a grant or you find someone who's interested in the content, who's going to support it, you can make it happen. And you just have to assume that you're probably not going to make any money on the, on the back end. You're not going to sell it because there's not much of a market place for it, but there is a demand for it Mm -hmm. and people watch them. And some of our shorts have been seen 10 million times, Mm -hmm. you know, I mean, if a, if a feature doc got 10 million views, it would be a blockbuster, right? And you've made a decision, especially with stranger at the gate, there should be no barrier for entry, right? I mean, it's available anywhere in the world free. People can go to YouTube, right? They can go to the New Yorker. Um, I guess the, another important thing though, these days when there isn't an obvious, um, mechanism for raising attention for docs, it can be really great to have champions who are passionate and high profile. And you guys found one with Malala. Can you talk about what led you to connect and what has been the value of her endorsement? Sure. So early on, we actually thought about who would be the best champion, the best ambassador for this film and for its message. And we made a list. I had a little brain trust and we, we met and we made a list and in the whole world, number one on our list was Malala. Yeah. And we, so we approached her and we showed her a version of the film and we heard back fairly quickly, uh, that she wanted to be a part of it. And we were, we were just 
delighted. I mean, it truly is like having her be a part of our team and being our, our ambassador to the world. It's very powerful. I mean, people, it's kind of like having mother Teresa on your, on your team. You know, it's people respect her. They admire her. Um, she's an authentic person. Uh, she has, you know, lived through incredibly challenging things and been an inspiration to people. And, uh, you know, like we're like, for example, we're going to a, a school next week with Malala to show the, the film to school children. And they just informed us today. They said, oh, we forgot to mention there's a giant mural of Malala in our school that the kids made a few years ago. Wow. And, you know, so it's like she's an icon, totally. you know, and to have her be a part of this is incredible. I mean, when we finished this film and we, uh, the first thing we did was we, we showed it to the Islamic Center of Muncie, the people who are in the film, the people we filmed and in the place that we filmed it. And because we wanted to, you know, we wanted to make sure we got it right. We wanted to make sure they were happy and we wanted to show them respect. Mm -hmm. So we had a screening in the basement of the, the center, about 80 people came and the film played. And then when it was over, the lights came on and I was like, <clears throat> I didn't know what to expect. I didn't know people were going to like it or not like it. And one guy stood up and he said, I just want to say one thing about this film. He said, I believe that every American needs to see this film. And, you know, first I felt a sense of relief, you know, okay, good. They liked it. <laughs> and then second, I felt a sense of obligation. We have to do this. We have to make sure everyone sees this film and having Malala be a part of it is going to help us achieve that goal. Totally. Another thing that will help being at the Academy Awards on March 12th. I am very excited to see you and Malala there, and I wish you guys the best of luck. Thanks for doing this. Thank you, Scott. It's fun. Thanks. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. And now for my conversation with Malala Yousafzai. Malala, thank you so much for doing this. So honored to have you on the podcast and uh, to see you again. And I guess uh, on this podcast, we kind of go through the big moments in each guest's life. And the first of those is where they were born and what their parents did for a living. So for anyone who may not know, could you share that? Yes, I was born in the north of Pakistan in Swat Valley. It is a very beautiful place. My dad was a school teacher. 
my mom was uh, she was not doing any formal jobs but she was running the house and uh, i later on had two younger brothers so i was the first one in the family and i was you know i was the first girl born in the family which was not a good news for many of our relatives because they wanted our family to have a son but things uh, changed later on my dad was really proud that he had a daughter he named me after malala of my one then afghan heroine and he began this journey of being a feminist father and um, yeah this that's that's where i come from that's great and i you beat me to asking you about your name because in your nobel speech you spoke about just that this was sort of the the joan of arc of the pashtun community right she fought in the second anglo afghan war yeah. she is known for her bravery because she was the one who actually brought the soldiers back to fight uh, through her voice so that was still a fight that was fought through swords and and guns but today like when i look at the activism that i do it's a fight through pen it's a fight through words and I, i i know that when my dad was naming me after her that was because he knew that we did not have that many female heroes in our history and she was the only one he could name so he wanted his daughter to be named uh, after her and uh, so yeah my dad has been very passionate about women women's rights their dignity and he find ways to to reflect his passion for it well i'd like to ask you about that because it's not um common anywhere in the world necessarily or it should be more common for men to advocate for women whether or not they have a daughter you know that's become a kind of running joke now that people only say enlightened things when they say as the as the father of a daughter or whatever but it shouldn't shouldn't take that why do you think your father was sort of leaning in that direction i think even before you came along my dad witnessed gender inequality in his own life when his own five sisters could not go to school they were not treated equally as uh, him or his brother so he wanted a different life for his daughter and his sons he wanted to treat them both equally he wanted to ensure that his daughter does not miss out on the opportunity to education to get a job and and he knew that he could influence at least the life of one woman one person and he made that commitment he stood by me at different stages of my life whether that was to protect me to continue to be an activist when a lot of family members told him that his daughter should not be on the tv screen he he made sure that i get my education he made sure that i do the things i want uh, and i often look back and i think for a second what if my father had stopped me because this was the story of so many girls in swat valley who became activists who were raising their voices but it was either their brothers or their fathers or other family members who stopped those girls what makes my story different is that my father did not stop me mm. did he actively encourage you to become an activist or was it you just seeing his example that made you at such a young age we should remind people that well before the world you know all learned your story in 2012 this was going on for several years before that and i guess really starting when daily life in swat valley began to change when the Taliban showed up i guess 2007 2008 yes. you were only at that time 10 years old <laughs> amazing uh 
my dad was my role model he was an activist he was advocating for peace for gender equality and when when i started getting involved in activism he would tell me not to um call the taliban by name he would want he wanted me to be more careful that's what any dad would want for their children uh to not be at any risk he said you can talk about education but don't like don't talk about the taliban don't uh, say their names and I, i and i used to tell my dad that i'm learning from you just as you speak truth to power like i also want to speak truth to power so he was my role model and i looked up to him and still to this day i am amazed by the energy that he has when he sees an injustice in front of him and he steps up and fights for it that is something that often time people people lack yeah. so i uh, i definitely think it was my father at that time who inspired me but it was also what was happening to my rights Mm-hmm. at the time girls education was eventually completely banned in 2009 there were difficulties before girls were threatened they were encouraged to drop out of schools many schools were bombed as well female teachers were discouraged but later on a, a time came when they said uh, on their fm radio that no girl can go to school and the deadline was the 15th of january 2009 my friends and i even though the number had reduced in our classrooms went to school to till the last day we knew that education was so precious to us that we did not want to take even one minute of it for granted and we after the ban also started going to school secretly as well um one thing which i learned from that that experience in swat valley was that education is something that empowers women and many people are still trying to understand the importance of education but i think even the taliban knew that education is important for the empowerment of women they did not want to see women empowered that's why they banned them from education like that was their step one mm. to take away the foundation of equality empowerment from women and i guess we've seen that again when they've now come back into power in afghanistan that first thing women's yes. rights uh, young girls rights are being targeted but um You mentioned that you knew at that time that education was important. It was very important to you. Aside from hearing your father say that, you obviously came to feel that yourself. What, you know, we're in a country right now where there are a lot of young boys and girls who say, "I hate school. I don't want to go to school. What do I need this for?" Why do you think you at that young an age knew that it was important? I won't blame the kids who say they hate <laughs> schools because we have to talk about the quality of education in our schools we have to uh discuss the pressure that we put on children but a situation where education is taken away from you completely and it's taken away from you for the purpose of disempowering you mm-hmm. then you have to step up and speak out for your right to education i think what is beautiful about freedom and liberty is that you can talk about these institutions you can talk about what's wrong with them and you can talk about improving yeah. them that's the beauty of the democracies that we live in so i would encourage children to talk about how we can improve teaching the content and how we can ensure that the education is actually preparing them for their future as they step into uh, more of a real world but 
we do know that that is the reality of the world is 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 much worse when it comes to education even though we have seen progress in the past few decades but as someone who went through that situation where i was myself not allowed to be in school i knew that education is important even for that last child who is out of school so in today's world there are more than 130 million girls who do not have access to schools and there are hundreds of millions of children who are in school but are not learning this should alarm us because education prepares us for our future for the jobs for how we live our lives in families in workspace uh, in society and when you look at research education is key in improving our economies in addressing conflicts and fighting against um extreme poverty or mitigating climate change so education has to be a top priority right. uh for for us right now and that's why like i'm i'm so passionate about it my own story is connected to it but i also see the countless benefits that come with it absolutely and i think that the first time that people may aside from the people who you already knew got to hear about your passion for this was when you began blogging right now I, this was a bbc blog titled diary of a pakistani schoolgirl you were writing it under a pseudonym initially because this was obviously provocative how did that even come about initially my dad was asked for a senior school student who could share about her life in swat valley and how the ban on girls education had impacted them my dad did ask one girl and the day after her dad came and said that he cannot put his daughter's life at risk and when i heard all of that conversation i told my dad that i wanted to do it because even though i was still 11 i knew i could i knew i could share about my life so i used to talk to a journalist every night and i would share about my life that day how we were scared walking to school and we would hear bombings and firings all night that would keep us awake and it was a scary uh, and frightening situation that we were living in and i was hoping that somebody would hear my story and think about swat valley and what was happening with girls um and that somebody would sort of reach out um so that was one way in which i was doing my activism but when i think about activism i i i'm often asked about activism like how can we all become activists mm-hmm. and when i reflect back on my journey as an activist i think it was everything that we did whether it was doing a small protest or joining a peace walk or doing a blog or volunteering to appear in a international documentary and talking to the local and national televisions everything collectively helped us to become activists and together with the blogging i also was uh, doing a lot of interviews including with the new york times they made a documentary about yes. my life and they covered the journey of the last day of school and i remember i was talking to one journalist and i told them that the taliban might put locks on the doors of our schools but they cannot put locks on our mind we will continue to learn we will find ways to get our education to seek knowledge um so that was how my my activism began and you you mentioned some of these other interviews and things that began happening once the blog was 
was out there. And yes, the blog was under a pseudonym, but soon you began to be interviewed on camera, share your, you know, your name was out there. Was it ever a, was it, was it a concern from the beginning that that might make you a target? Or did you guys think that these guys, you know, the Taliban, as bad as they are, are just not going to give a, a young girl physical problems? Was that, how did you feel about that? That was true. As you said, we did not expect them to target a 15-year-old girl because we were thinking, how could they be so scared of a 15-year-old girl's voice? And I was more worried about my dad's safety. Mm-hmm. Um, so... Uh, you know, I was going to school normally after peace was restored in Swat Valley. Before that, there were the, the situation worsened. There was internal displacement as well for three months. We were in different cities with relatives, friends, or even strangers, or some people were living in the local camps. But after those three months, uh, we we came back and peace was restored. We could not see the Taliban on the streets anymore, but we did know that there were bullet holes on every wall and so many buildings were damaged, schools were damaged, and it was going to take a long time to rehabilitate our valley and also ensure that girls and children start going back to schools. And at that time, I also realized that uh, there was a lot more that needed to be done for true empowerment of girls because there were other issues that girls were facing, including early child marriages, forced marriages, child labor, stereotypes that prevented them from having access to education and other opportunities. So I continued my journey as an activist, but I I had no idea that the Taliban would actually do that. Of course, you know, I had scary dreams sometimes and uh, I would think about scenarios where they could show up, but you always tell yourself, like, that is less likely to happen until it happens. Can I ask you, I guess I'm thinking what listeners might be thinking listening to this. um, Taliban, were these people who came from outside of the community and and came into town? Or were they people who were from the community and became radicalized? How would you, if you're on the street, even know who the Taliban was? Are they wearing uniforms? Are they just mixed in with everybody else? So just curious about that. The Taliban in Pakistan um, claimed that they were going to bring this Islamic system in the whole country. And they they believed that the systems that we already have were not Islamic enough. And initially, you know, their preachings were were limited to just code of conduct, etc. But soon they started targeting women. They started uh, telling women that they should be sitting in their houses and they should not be doing work or going to schools. And to think about like where the Taliban come from, there is a long history. There is connection to the Afghan Taliban. There's also connection to the old Mujahideen. These groups have just emerged from from the previous ones. And, you know, you do think about the international relations and politics in here and how uh, it goes back to the to the to this, you know, to the Soviet uh, presence in Afghanistan and how it goes back to the Cold War. The people in in parts of Pakistan and in, and in Afghanistan have gone through many of these conflicts for the past four decades and people don't even know where to start, who to blame. And there is a lot of like politics and geopolitics in here and a lot of countries like could be blamed in this. Um, 
I think for us, like when I think about the situation, I know that when we give opportunities to people, especially to those who are vulnerable, who are left out, who are unheard, we can fight radicalism. We can fight, we, we can fight fundamentalism. I always think about that one person who decided to attack me and why would that person have done that? Was it the fact that they were misguided? Did they not have access to the opportunities such as education? Were they struggling with the economy? Did they come from a background that they were not treated fairly? So sometimes you think about how we can address the bigger problem and not try to attack individuals. Because for me, it's it's more about the ideology. It's more about something bigger uh, that needs to be addressed. I believe I read that, um, and this kind of just illustrates how it is a, such a hard to kind of control thing in, in parts of the world. But is it true that when your own father, who became this very enlightened, amazing guy, when he was young, he was in a way recruited and resisted, thankfully, because there were members of his family who were able to talk him out of it. But it, that just shows how close to home this can come, right? It can happen to anyone in any part of the world. I think it's really important that we empower children with the uh, skills of critical thinking. We have to question the information that we receive. What is the source of it? Is it credible or not? Is it plausible or not? Um, and oftentimes, uh, it you know it can happen to young kids, and that's why like young kids are the target of radicalization and extremism. And my dad was very lucky that he was exposed to a range of views, you know, on the left and right and the religious side that he realized that, you know, we need to be more open to like accepting everyone around us. And he started believing in humanity. Um, and again, I think when I think about radicalism and extremism and how narrow the thinking can be. One thing that can be really powerful is connecting with the stories of people around the world. It makes you see them as humans. It, it helps you see them as, as yourself. Mm -hmm. And even though I was surrounded by the mountains of Swat and I had not seen the world outside, but it was the stories that I was exposed to through television, through movies that helped me see the world out there, whether that was the Hollywood or Bollywood. And the very first movie I saw was Titanic. I was just going to ask you about that because this Oscars that you will yes. be a part of is exactly 25 years after the Titanic Oscars. Yes. And I heard that, you know, you get, you're out in rural Pakistan, there's not a ton of pop culture reaching you, but there was Titanic. How? Why was Titanic popular there? Titanic did reach to Pakistan. And at that time, we did not even have a television. There was a computer in my dad's school and we all went to the, to the computer lab and uh, 
we played the this the cd and there we go we watched the titanic and that movie had been like our favorite movie for such a long time my dad was just in love with rose and jack and we always used to think about the last scene and like could jack have been <laughs> saved so that has that has been on everyone's mind including us like up in the north of pakistan <laughs> well uh you know that James Cameron is nominated, so I don't know if you've if you've seen him yet, but the he will be there as well. I will definitely ask him about Jack. <laughs> so, um, you know, what must be strange is that there is a uh, a dark day in your life, October 9th, twenty twelve, that everybody else sort of remembers it or knowing about or learning about, but you don't really remember much at all about it, do you? I'm really grateful for that, yeah. that I don't remember that day. I remember my last day of school, I was with my friends. We were waiting for our school bus and then we were just giggling and thinking about the our exams the next day. And I remember the school bus um, driving soon and the journey started. But after that, I don't remember anything. I remember waking up in a hospital in Birmingham in the UK. And this is days, at least 10 days later, right? Because you were in a, a medically induced coma. Yes, I was. And I, of course, have like visuals and I had a lot of dreams and I cannot figure out which dreams are true and which are not. And um, and I, when I woke up, I did know that I had been attacked mm -hmm. and I was worried that my dad might have been attacked as well. Mm -hmm. And um, I had a tube in my neck, so I could not speak initially. But at that time, I only had two questions on my mind. One was, where is my dad? And the second one was, who's going to pay for this? I don't have money. So, <laughs> but I was lucky. My parents joined uh, 10 days later as they got their visa. And I was so amazed by the love and support that I had received from people all around the world. When I saw the cards and the letters and when I watched the news, I could not believe it. Um, and I, it was a moment for me to think about what to do next. And I knew that this was a time where I could not just speak out for my right to education, but I could speak out for all girls to be in schools. And sometimes when I think about the incident, I... I, I feel like, you know, the Taliban made a big mistake. <laughs> they messed with the wrong person. Yes, um, <laughs> because today we want to advocate for all girls to have access to education. So you've said that you were not a big reader as a child, but after the incident, when you're recovering in the hospital, among the many, I think, uh, cards and gifts and whatever that came was a a package of 25 books from Gordon Brown, the leader of yes. England at the time. And uh, you have said that I, I think you made your way through those books, but did one have a particular meaning to you? I love The Wizard of Oz. <laughs> now, does that have anything to do with There's No Place Like Home? I was struggling a bit to find a new home in the UK. And it was even more challenging for my mother because she could not speak English and later on, you know, she took lots of English classes and she's very fluent now. But you are not only adjusting to this new language and, and new environment, but you're also missing your friends, you're missing your relatives, you're missing your old home. And it, it, it takes a while to adjust to that. But I was really grateful that I found amazing friends and the people there just welcomed us all. 
they welcomed my mom especially you know my mom is friends with uh, one of our english teachers now and and they have an amazing time together and i have known people for the past like 7 8 years now and when when we are we are still together so as your recovery progressed this amazing um fact that you have, have come back as strongly as you have you begin going there's no going back at that time for sure to your old home your old school your old way of life so when you're starting now at a new school it's hard enough for anybody to start at a new school right but um you're now not because you sought to be this but an international celebrity and in addition to being the new kid in school and i found this quote that you said in 2014 to be so interesting you said quote it's odd to be so well known but to be so lonely at the same time close quote how did you figure out because i know that over the years since you've had to continue to figure this out how do i make friends be around people my own age without without always being malala the person that the whole world knows but just a person i was very shy at school i i was quiet mostly because i did not know what to say and if you don't know the local jargons and if you're not up to date with the pop songs and everything it's hard to get engaged in a conversation and i was a late comer in school so a lot of uh people had already made their friends and all i did was just read books in the library or uh, or you know just um sit with one or two friends but not talk much and you can see that in the documentary as well that was made on me he named me malala you know like when i when i look at the footage uh, now i can see that lonely malala in there but i was lucky that i did find one or two friends um, and i found my best friend ellen as well we stay in touch and we're you know we're still besties and she helped me through um, in the completion of my school but when i was going to university i knew that i had to approach things very differently i knew that everybody would be a newcomer in the first year so you have to be more confident and don't be shy and 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 say hi to people and by then i had broken this image of me as an as an activist outside and how people treat me in you know in the in the world out there and there i have to be a student only so when i went to university i remember my school principal asked me if he could write an email to all the students and mention me and i said no 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 you are not going to write an email to all the students because i want them to just see me as they would see everyone else just there going to lectures or attending our first class or asking about where the dining hall is just as everybody would do and that's how i did it i went there and i started saying hello to everyone and i made lots of friends in university i would say that that was one of the best times for that's me that's great well to go back though just for a moment to high school um because i guess there's no getting around the fact that there's these parallel tracks in your life it's you want to have and are entitled to have a sort of normal life right but you still want to use your profile to do good things so while you're i believe all of this is while you're in high school in July 2013 on your 16th birthday you address the UN that same year your autobiography I am Malala was published the next year 2014 you and your father started the Malala fund and then on October 10th 2014 
two years, almost exactly after you were shot, you're in your high school chemistry class. Yes. And can you share how, I mean, what, what happened uh, then? Yes, I, I, I went to school, even though I was asked uh, to stay at home and prepare for a press conference just in case I win the Nobel Peace Prize. <laughs> I said, no, yeah. school is more important. So I went to school. I was in my chemistry class and my school's deputy head teacher showed up and she called me outside and she usually calls you when you are in trouble. So I was a bit <laughs> worried. And then she told me that I ha had won the Nobel Peace Prize. I was speechless. I did not know what to say. I just said, thank you. And I gave short remarks at the school as well, just to thank everyone and to tell them about the importance of education. And it was still the early hours of school. And I said, well, I have to finish my school day. So I went back to my physics class because if you are given the Nobel Peace Prize for education, right. you have to finish your school day. <laughs> now, uh, how long did it take for it to sort of sink in for you that you are, as a result of that, in the company of, just among many other people, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., Mother Teresa, Elie Wiesel, Nelson Mandela, the Dalai Lama, Barack Obama. Some of these are people who I know were, were and are heroes of yours. When you realize that what your efforts have done have put you in that company, what do you make of that? I was really grateful for the Nobel Peace Prize because I believed that it was given to children that year. I received it together with Kailash Satyarthi, who has been advocating for children's rights for many, many years. And he had freed more than 80,000 children from forced labor. And to stand together with him on that stage and receive the diploma and the medal and talk about the issues that children are facing around the world, children who do not have access to education, children who face violence, children who are forced into labor, children who are not given the right to have their dreams or to even play or to even read and write. So that year I felt that the Nobel Peace Prize was, was for all the children in the world who deserve a better world. Well, and also in a, on a related note, you have sort of, it can't be a coincidence, there is now this wave of young women, young girl activists who have followed. I'm just, I think you're, you've become friendly with a number of them. There's Greta Thunberg, the climate change activist. There's Emma Gonzalez, the gun safety activist. These are, I, I, it's wonderful, right? And I don't know if it would have happened before you. I think it would have definitely happened because social media and new tools have empowered a lot of young people to find their way to do activism, but also the, the issues that they are facing, they are just tired of how long it takes to address those problems. We still face uh, extreme poverty. We are worried about climate change. We are worried about inequality in, and injustices that are systemically rooted uh, in, in the systems and in the institutions. So uh, I am always impressed by the, the stamina that the young people have, and I hope that they carry on their activism. They are a hope for the future. And I do acknowledge the progress that has been made. And I think that's the response that we usually get from the older generation <laughs> right. is like so much has happened. But I think I'm sure that the people who are doing activism at that time were not satisfied with how the world was. 
and it's the young people who are not satisfied with how the world is and they want to make it even better. So we should encourage young people, even if they are complaining a bit more and even if they are frustrated a bit more, their frustration helps them in becoming active uh, in making the world a better place. And I want young people not just to do the protest, but also get into the institutions, like take positions of power, become the leaders, become the change makers, find every way in which you can bring the change you want to see. You could not have better set up the next question that I want to ask you, which <laughs> is, as an activist, you've had a great impact. I'm thinking the only way that you could potentially have an even greater impact would be to get into politics, polit political office yourself. And I just, I wonder, it sounds like the first Pakistani female prime minister, Benazir Bhutto, was an inspiration to you. I think it may not be a coincidence that you went to the same college at Oxford that she attended. Um, I wore her scarf at the UN speech as well. At the UN yes. speech. And I think you maybe acknowledged her at the Nobel speech. Yes. Um, so here's a, another um, amazing Pakistani young woman who chose to uh, try to make change, but did it also by getting into politics. Is that something that, A, you would ever consider, and B, if you did consider it, would that happen in the UK? Would it happen, would that mean you went back to Pakistan? Is that even possible? I think there are a lot of questions yeah, sorry. <laughs> that I can answer. One is, of course, like I want... I want to go back to Pakistan and I have been back to Pakistan in 2018. I went there last year as well. I wanted to bring attention to how floods has impacted people and it has demolished so many schools as well. And I am bringing attention to the work that we are supporting through Malala Fund. And we have a lot of activists who are doing activism for improving the quality of education. They are bringing um, sciences and technology and mathematics into the school's content. It's called STEAM education uh, and many other things. So I do think that presence in Pakistan uh, is meaningful because it's my home and, uh, and, and I and I want to do a lot more uh, in Pakistan because it's it's the second country after Nigeria which has the highest number of girls out of school. Uh, but in terms of Politics, I think that firstly, I still have a bit a bit more time to make a decision yes, on that yes. <laughs> because the, every, the average age is like, you know, probably very high. Um, and I also think that if you are passionate about bringing change in your community, there are many more ways in which you can do that, whether that is through the work of a nonprofit or or another profession that you take, or even through movies and, and, and the TV content that you produce, all of that can have such a huge impact. And I think it's important for us to explore all those opportunities uh, in which we can spread our message. And I think lastly, um, about female leadership in politics, I think Benazir was a role model, not just for women and girls in Pakistan or in the Muslim countries, but around the world. And I hope that we do see more women leaders, prime ministers and presidents in Pakistan, in the US mm -hmm. <laughs> as well, mm -hmm. and around the world. Yes. When you graduated in, uh, I believe, 2020. June 2020, yes. 
you, that meant you're graduating into a very weird world, right? The, that this was just after the outbreak of the pandemic. This is at a time when social media is omnipresent, especially for young people. Um, I just wonder, do you, you know, there are so many young people who seem to be struggling, I think maybe partly because of the pandemic, isolating them, partly because of social media, making them feel that everybody else is having a great time when they are not, which is not always the case, or, you know, so many different things related to that. So I'm curious, did or do you use social media? And do you think that it is actually uh, more a force for good or bad? I do use social media a lot. Um, everybody loves to scroll through reels or TikTok videos <laughs> and check our friend stories. Um, but at the same time, I really care about my work. Mm -hmm. So if I, if I have to prepare for an event or do my job, I do not touch my phone at all. So I think, you know, you can use social media, but just make sure you are more in control of how you use it mm -hmm. and you know what your priorities are. So if there's something more important that you need to do, then you need to put your phone aside. So uh, when you graduated, you put out a tweet, uh, quote, I don't know what's ahead for now. It will be Netflix reading and sleep, close quote. And I think that some people, I might be one of them. Uh, it's hard for them to imagine Malala as someone who is not always out there fighting, but is, as everyone is entitled to be, someone who also, you know, just wants to relax and have fun doing things that all young people do. So given that you brought Netflix up, I've got to ask you about your favorites of a few things, if that's OK. What are your favorite movies? I love animation, Inside Out, mm. Madagascar. Shrek. I loved all animation movies. Yes. I think those stories are just so powerful, simple, straightforward, and it can touch your emotions. I have loved like a lot of movies recently as well. I watched everything everywhere all at once and I absolutely loved it. I watched Top Gun as well. That yeah. was impressive. <laughs> And uh, Elvis, again, like truly amazing. And I actually met Austin Butler. at. There are many young luncheon. women who are jealous of that. <laughs> and Tom Cruise, you met. Yes, I know. Tom Cruise <laughs> and Austin Butler. And it was crazy. And I did notice he has that deep voice. Yes, he's yeah, still talking that, like yeah, Elvis. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. So no acting there. That was all natural. Right. So that's movies. How about TV shows? I loved Ted Lasso, mm. the message that it just brought about optimism and friendship and support for each other was amazing. I loved Cobra Kai. I am waiting for Succession's new season. Mm. I love Stranger Things as well, even though the last season was so scary. <laughs> I could not watch it on my own in the dark, uh, but that's a lesson learned. I'm going to watch it in the daylight. And I, I enjoy these shows because... They just helped me escape from the busy, stressful schedule that I could have sometimes. And it also helps me connect to people. Sometimes you're very limited in the world of your work. You are meeting just a certain group of people. You may not go to some of those countries. You may not meet people from that background. And it's the TV shows and the movies that helps you connect to everybody. So I feel like I know everything about like... Uh, karate and I feel like I know everything about 
um this multiverse and, yes, and yes. these different worlds that we could live in and it's 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 fascinating it helps us connect is it true that you may also be into video games not right now but <laughs> i did play games as a kid i played gta city vice city i um <laughs> I know, so funny. I don't know why I was playing games, but I have two younger brothers and they were into games. Um, but like they were... Something. I heard Among Us. Is that a game? Yes. <laughs> so yes, like then I switched to the social media, the, okay. you know, the, the mobile games. Okay. And it was Candy Crush <laughs> and Minions and Among Us. <laughs> I loved Among Us. Like we would play together with my friends and my husband would also be playing that yeah. game with us. And you could do like a, an audio version of it as well, where you could talk to each other. Oh, cool. So I would call him. I'll be like, you know, come to the corner. I really want to talk to you. And then I would be the imposter and I would like assassinate him. So it was fun. He was like, you tricked me. But that, gotcha. that's yeah. part of the game. That's it. Yeah. Favorite actor or actress? I have to mention Bollywood here because yeah. I grew up watching Bollywood movies and Shah Rukh Khan is my favorite actor of all time. Bollywood movies influenced our emotions, our feelings. Like we used to imagine those scenarios where we would meet an actor like him in our lifetime <laughs> and have all those romantic moments. And, you know, we grew up in those in those movies. And in those beautiful songs and in those colorful scenes. So love Shah Rukh Khan, Kajol and so many other actors from Bollywood. That's from also, we should just say, isn't that another example of how um, entertainment can bridge connections? Because people want to talk about India and Pakistan having irreconcilable differences. But here we are, a young Pakistani girl entranced with Bollywood. Yes, and I also grew up watching um, Indian television mm -hmm. series as well. We had a lot of Indian sitcoms and soap operas that we were addicted to. We would not miss an episode. And there were lots of kids shows as well, such as like Shararat or Sonpari or Shakalaka Boom Boom that influenced me mm -hmm. because they had female lead characters and they would show how the girl is fighting against the challenges or there was this one show about a boy with a magic pencil and whatever he draws becomes real. That influenced me so much that mm. I used to pray for a magic pencil <laughs> every day when I was a kid to fix all the problems. And later on, you know, as I started doing my activism and I reflected on that, I realized that maybe I did find my magic in my words mm -hmm. uh, as an activist. And we all can have magic uh, in us if we give ourselves a moment and try to find it, whether that is in our art or different skills or in our voice and i also wrote a book on that yes. there's a picture book malala's magic pencil yes so you know television bollywood movies everything it has influenced me it has influenced so many other people and it has connected the countries and even before you graduated from university i think from the age of 16 you had an agent at UTA, which is one of our big agencies out here. I think it seems like you understood from an early point that you could spread your message or, or values that are important to you through show business, through Hollywood. I use Hollywood as a not necessarily literally uh, an American movie or whatever, but just through movies and TV and all of that. So I wonder when you started working with that 
agent, uh, Darnell Strom. And then eventually when you thought about forming your own production company, which is extracurricular, what were your ambitions for what you would do? TV content, media had already been part of my activism and there had been movies and shows made about me, but I wanted to use those opportunities to amplify the voices of other women and young people to reflect the world as they see it. So that's why I started this production company after my college as I was finding more opportunities in which I can do uh, my work. And so through extracurricular, um, we are working with different directors, writers to produce uh, TV content. And currently we are in partnership with Apple TV Plus. We are already working on our first feature film. And I will be able to share more about that by the end of this year. And I was also able uh, to be part of two amazing shows. Uh, one was a movie from Pakistan, Joyland, and the other was Stranger at the Gate, yes. a short documentary that has now been nominated for the Oscars. Absolutely. And I'm going to specifically ask you uh, about Stranger at the Gate in a moment. But I wonder, um, you know, some of the projects that you are doing with Extracurricular and Apple are out there. Some of them I know you have to be a little quiet about for now, but any that you can talk about that you're especially excited about? What I'm really excited about is that I am working with amazing people, especially women directors and writers, and we are giving a chance to stories that are written by debut women writers, and it's giving a chance to those who are often ignored their work is not considered as important. And I believe that their stories are so powerful. They need, they need to be given a chance. And it's also stories that are relevant and important uh, in today's world. And I also believe that, you know, it does not have to be a serious, sad story. All forms of content can influence us, including comedy and animation. So I'm exploring all the genres. Right. Uh, yeah. What do you like? You've now been, as a result of all this, I think, spending more time in and around Hollywood. Today, we're speaking in Santa Monica, but close enough. <laughs> um, what do you like most and least about Hollywood, the place? And what do you like most and least about Hollywood, the business? I'm always happy in Los Angeles, uh, wherever I am he uh, here, because it's always warm and beautiful here. You're by the beach as well. And I live in the UK, so it can be really cold in the winters. <laughs> so it it's it can get really miserable yeah. there. So I'm always looking forward to be here, especially in the winter time. In terms of Hollywood, the industry, I think people are understanding that we need to give a chance to people from all backgrounds. And the fact that I, as a 25-year-old Muslim Pakistani girl, has made it to Hollywood shows us that there is a bit of seriousness about caring uh, about diversity and inclusion. And when I look at the work of these incredible South Asian people, such as Priyanka Chopra or Aziz Ansari or Kumail Nandiani, um, Bella and Lily Singh and many others, I am just amazed by how much they have changed in the past years. And they are supporting me in the work that I'm doing. And uh, we are 
able to like collaborate and talk about the shared values that we have and how we can ensure that we produce content that is entertaining and that can connect people from all around the world. And you're paying it forward because I've heard that the hottest ticket of of the weekend, forget about the Producers Guild Awards or the Screen Actors Guild Awards, is actually a Q&A that's happening tomorrow, moderated by you with Michelle Yeoh. Yes, that is crazy. When I was watching that movie, I had no idea I would ever be interviewing or meeting anyone of them. So is, I'm sure they're thrilled as, I am at so least excited. as much. I know. I'm supporting Michelle Yeoh. I hope that she wins the Best Actress well, And, and will you, I imagine I saw you at the Oscar nominees luncheon. Um, you've been tremendously supportive of Stranger at the Gate, which we're going to now move on to talking about. But is it fair to assume, will you be there on March 12th at the Oscars? I will be there at the awesome. Oscars. <laughs> and is, there, what, is that exciting, daunting, scary? I mean, you've, you've been in some pretty amazing rooms and with some pretty incredible company before, but I guess there is something different and special about the Oscars. First of all, I'm thinking about what I'm going to wear. So are you? Okay. I am working with the stylist right now and we are going through different sketches and how the dress should look. So it is, you know, it can be pretty scary, but I'm, I'm just excited. I am really excited to be in the company of such incredible people who we have admired, seen on screen for many, many years and who have like impacted our lives, our childhood. So to see their work would be, to see them in person would be just incredible. That's great. Okay, so let's really focus for a moment on the reason that we're lucky enough to have you come into the Oscars. And that is this year, uh, Stranger at the Gate. This is a documentary short that people can watch online for free anywhere in the world. And it's a pretty incredible story. So I just wonder how you first heard about the film even existing and what made you want to lend your support to it. So as I started the production company, I started receiving a lot of requests. And one day I received this request to see Stranger at the Gate. And when I first watched this short documentary in my living room, I was just truly amazed and inspired by the story because as the story begins, it it gets really intense and and darker. And I was watching it like right in the evening and I could connect a lot with the emotions that were going through, uh, you know, the people in the documentary. And I realized that this was a documentary about something really important. And that is our human values, which we take for granted, which we don't often talk about. But these are the values that impact how we behave, how we talk to each other, how we treat each other, and how powerful these values can be in changing a person's life. Mm. So in this story, there is Mac, a U.S. Marine veteran who has gone through a tough time because he has participated in wars and he goes through a post-traumatic stress disorder as well. And he is very protective of his family, especially his young daughter. And he's forms this incorrect perception in this head that his family and his community is under threat from the Muslim communities, mm-hmm. from the Muslim people in his neighborhood. In Indiana. In Indiana. And he decides to uh, target the local Islamic center. Mm-hmm. 
And before he does that, he wants to familiarize himself with the Islamic center. So he visits there and there he meets these strangers who are Muslims and they welcome him. They talk to him. They are not the people who he thought they were. They're normal people like him. They smile, they laugh, they share food, they joke, they talk about difficult circumstances, they talk about family. And there he meets Bibi Bahrami, who is such a kind, loving soul on earth. I am just amazed by the person that she is and the way that she treats Mac in this whole time changes his life. Mm. And later when they, when they find out that he was actually planning to target them, um, BB has a decision to make. Should she shut the door or should she talk to him? And she decides to invite him over for dinner, for a meal to talk to him. And there, I, like, I found something incredible that how powerful can these small gestures of kindness can be in changing a person's life. So Mac's life has changed completely. Bibi's life has changed completely as well. Mac is now spreading the message of peace and tolerance uh, among all the communities in the U.S. And uh, I think this is a documentary that needs to be watched by everyone because we do face hatred and discrimination based on gender, based on skin color, based on religious background. And this is something that everyone can relate to. I don't think it's just about a Muslim and a non-Muslim. It can be applied anywhere. Like I was shot by a Muslim person and even I could relate to this because the person who wanted to attack me did not know that I was a person just like him. He was just told I was somebody who was against the culture and against the religion. And uh, and I was made into this alien figure. So this alienation, this separation happens. And we have to challenge all of that and make sure that communities all around the world start connecting with each other through different ways. Even if we don't, we never see each other in person, these stories on our television screens can help us make that connection. Um, so I'm really like grateful to be part of it and to like connect with the director, um, Josh Seftel, and to work together with them. And I was asked to become the executive producer. When I watched the documentary, I said, of course, I have to be the executive producer. I want to take this opportunity to spread this message. And I would be so happy if people just watch it. Yeah. And uh, Joshua Seftel, who is the official nominee on behalf of the movie, is I, I think it speaks to your point about sort of the universal universality of all of this. He is Jewish. Yes. And he faced anti-Semitism as a child and it made him more empathetic, I guess, after 9-11 when he saw anti-Muslim behavior in this country. And that inspired his docu-series of short films about Islamophobia, of which this is the 25th installment. And I guess I just, it, to me, it's a, the subtext of the story here also is powerful that movies can bring people together, not just by, uh, you know, sending out a message, but just even the making of the, of the movies themselves. It is always incredible to sit together with Josh Seftel because 
you know, I can connect to Islamophobia or hatred against women while he talks about anti-Semitism and then there's Bibi and then there's Mag. And when all of us sit together, we realize that there is something really powerful happening. All of us come from really different backgrounds, but we know that there's something common that we all are fighting for. And that is to talk about the shared humanity mm-hmm. that that we all need to value, that we all need to spread. So just to even be part of this uh, makes me feel really happy. Oh, that's great. And you've really helped to make the spotlight on the movie so much bigger because unfortunately, you know, it's not like in the old days where short films play before feature length films at every movie theater. Now, if somebody wants to watch a short, they usually have to seek it out. And that doesn't happen unless somebody really um, makes the, makes a person aware of a short being out there and important. So I think that, you know, it just shows the power of your name and the endorsement here as well. I'm just grateful for everyone who has supported this short documentary. And, you know, thanks to uh, The New Yorker for helping uh, in producing it and also it's available on YouTube so yes. anyone can watch it anytime and the more people watch it the more they share it the message will spread and when I think about this documentary I think about how Bibi's life changed when she moved to the U.S. back in the time of the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan and it was the people in the U.S. in her community who welcomed her she received love and Later on, when she saw Mac, she knew that he needed love. She, she gave him the love. And what I really like about the story is that it was Mac's willingness as well to be open, to listen, to accept that love that he was receiving. And it's important for all of us to keep our hearts open to listening to others, to connecting with others. And I hope that when someone watches this documentary, that if if it can change their life, like that would be something tremendous, even if it's like one person's yeah, life. Totally. Yeah. With our last one minute, I wonder if we could do something sort of fun and random. This is what we call rapid fire. Just a okay. f- bunch of assorted <laughs> topics. First word or sentence that comes to mind. Um, in June 2021, you told British Vogue, quote, I still don't understand why people have to get married. If you want to have a person in your life, why do you have to sign marriage papers? Why can't it just be a partnership, close quote? In November 2021, you got married. What changed and how is married life? I was just giving a hint that I'm going to get married. People (laughs) took it way too seriously. (laughs) Okay, next one. I know you don't like to talk about specific politicians very much. There is one person, though, who I don't think it's that controversial to to have an opinion about, or or maybe it's controversial to some people, but I can kind of guess how you feel maybe about Donald Trump. So I'm just saying, here's somebody who tried to ban Muslims from entering this country, called Mexicans rapists, separated children from their parents, said there were good people on both sides of a neo-Nazi rally, um, has been accused of sexual misconduct, all of that. He's now said he wants to run for president again. What's your response to that? I do not live in the U.S., But I would say that people who do live here would be impacted a lot by who becomes the president of the country. And to be honest, the U.S. has a role in global politics as well. So it does eventually impact us, but it's the vote of the American people. 
and uh, their vote would matter to everyone. And I hope that they make a conscious decision where they bring somebody who cares about every, every person. Mm -hmm. Davis Guggenheim made a documentary about you in 2015 that we talked about called He Named Me Malala. I was there at that first screening in the Telluride Film Festival. I think you zoomed in to yes. talk to us. If someone makes a narrative movie, you know, just a acted movie about you, who would you like to play you? It would be hard to pick, but I would say that I really care about the director of my movie yes. because if you have the right person doing it, you can produce an amazing movie and they will understand how to do it. I would definitely select um, Siam Sadiq, who produced Joyland uh, from Pakistan. Mm -hmm. And that was the first Pakistani movie that got shortlisted for Oscars yeah. international movie. So he's done an incredible job. So yeah, maybe I'd work with him. Good choice. Who is the person in Hollywood who you would most like to meet? I know, as we said, you were there, you met a lot of cool people at the nominees luncheon, probably at other scenarios as well. But who have you not met who you would most like to meet? I still haven't met a lot of people. I am a big fan of like the singers like Rihanna and yeah. Beyonce. So just to see them, that would be amazing. I have met a few. I, I love Angelina Jolie. So I'm grateful that I'm friends with her. And uh, other than that, to be honest, everybody is just so amazing. So I would well, be starstruck. So. And I will say Rihanna has now confirmed that she will be at and performing at Perfect. the Oscars. So that checks off one. Perfect. Um, I guess finally, and not to leave it on a, a, a heavy question, but because you are, you travel the world, you've made all kinds of people. I think people would be curious to know. I certainly am. What do you see as the biggest threat facing the world today? For me, I think there are challenges in the world, but the biggest threat is people not caring about other people. And we have to ensure that we talk about human virtues and values and how important they are in helping us to be more responsible in addressing the world's problems. With new invention, new innovation, we do see more challenges, but it's us working collectively as humans that gives us hope that things can be improved, things can be made better for every person. So for me, it is about ensuring that we start believing in the shared humanity and we care for each other and we care for the planet Earth and we look after each other and we look after our planet as well. Right. Well, thank you so much for doing this and thank you for everything that you do. This is really a special honor for me. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. And I really enjoyed my conversation with you. Thanks for listening to Awards Chatter. We really appreciate it and would really appreciate you taking just a minute more to subscribe to the podcast and to leave us a rating and review on your podcast app. And to follow us on Twitter and Instagram, where our handle is at Awards Chatter. On those platforms, we announce upcoming guests and provide details about special live recordings of the podcast that you can attend. Until next time, thanks again for tuning in. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. 
That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.